Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. A reduction in our carbon footprint is also tied to bonus metrics for the leadership team. So we're trying all these these ways to make sure that this is not just a program we do on the side, but is truly central to how the organization operates and makes decisions and also gives sustainability the authority to make this a part of everyone's job, not just my team. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey, everybody. We are also joined by Hana Kajimura, the head of sustainability at Allbirds. And Hana is responsible for the development and execution of Allbirds sustainability program and strategy. So, Hana, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the future of sustainability and sustainable practices in the OS. But before we unpack that, let's check in. Let's sustainably let's check around. in. I was just going to say, it's our most sustain- <laughs> our most enduring and sustained practice so far. So we will start this episode like all the others. And because I haven't made my PSA in several episodes, I'm going to remind us why we do check-in rounds. It is to get present, to get to know each other better, to start on time. And to start with equal airtime, which is how we like for our interactions to go. So with that being said, our check-in question for today, stolen from a client mere moments ago, is if you could teach the world one single thing, every person in the world, what would it be? Let's go Aaron, then Hannah, then me. I think it would have to be some form of critical thinking like how to hear something or be curious about something and go find out more in a reliable way. Because mm. this is a world where we maybe have lost a little bit of that. <laughs> and okay. I'm feeling like it's a, it's a root skill. It's a, it's a first principle of society not collapsing. Nice. Hannah, what about you? That is a great question. What's top of mind for me is a conversation I was having with friends over the weekend about if you could write one thing on a billboard, what would it be? Mm. And I really liked the idea of this too shall pass. I think mm. both from a both from a positive perspective and a negative perspective. If you're stuck in traffic or in the middle of a pandemic, remembering this too shall pass. But also on the flip side, if something's going really well, I think it's a good reminder to stay present and enjoy what you're doing. I love, love that. It. I actually have a piece of neon in the bedroom that says this will never end, except the neon <laughs> cuts out the never. And that That's just great. speaks to me so much. So I love that. What about you, That's Rodney? Awesome. I would, it will come as a surprise to no one who's listened to this podcast. I would teach everyone in the world self-awareness because so many reasons. But one is that 
When I look around at the systemic conflict and issues that we see, there is so much inside (laughs) of it that is about individuals trying to contort reality to fit their perspective and worldview. Mm. And like, if we could all just drop in a little bit to like, you know, why we're so bothered by the state of things and in some ways understand our own reactions and interactions with the broader world, I feel like we'd be in much better, a much better place for actually Why am I so it. mad all the time and Why taking so it out mad? on geopolitical Why am I events? always yelling and yeah. yeah, suppressing other people because of that? Yeah, exactly. That's fantastic. Okay, so today's topic is the future of sustainability. We're so excited to talk about it. And I'd like to start by asking you, Hannah, what inspired you to start working in this space? And when do you feel like the fashion industry really entered the picture? Yeah, so for me, I think the journey really starts in college. Um, In college, I spent a semester abroad in Cape Town, South Africa, and I found myself working on this urban garden in one of the townships alongside six grandmothers. And we were trying to grow food every day for their community. And I realized two things. One, that youth was not particularly interested in engaging, that it was all about technology and moving to the city and getting away from farming. And two, that the soil and the water was drying up and that they were headed for some serious issues in terms of being able to provide for their community and families. And I realized I was in college to study something that was going to be a a problem for the rest of my life and to set up a career that would be uh, allow me to work on the biggest problem for the rest of my life. And to me, that was very clearly climate change. So that's when I really got interested in the environment and studying that. And then fashion was fairly unexpected. Uh, I never thought I'd work in fashion. I thought I would work on something that was really directly solving climate change. So something like renewable energy or electric vehicles or food. And it honestly, I was hooked by the opportunity at Allbirds that it was just starting out as a company. I joined uh, about four and a half years ago, so maybe a year into the company's founding. And it was the opportunity to reimagine what sustainability within a company could look like and how to really start with a blank slate and integrate it from the beginning. And that that was really exciting to me. And only over time have I realized the unique opportunity that I think the apparel and fashion industry has in solving the climate crisis, which is one, that it's connected to everything. So it is connected to food and agriculture, and it is connected to transportation and logistics and manufacturing. But two, that as a consumer brand, as a fashion company, you have this line to consumers, to customers around the world to educate them and and quite literally set trends. And I think that that is really the legacy that the industry more broadly and, and hopefully all birds will leave on the climate crisis is bringing more people into caring. I think it's in a way it's working, right? Because more and more companies are talking about sustainability and environmental impact. Some of that might be a little greenwashy, but for the most part, it's a real movement. But a lot of talk and no action means that a word like sustainability starts to mean different things to different people. And so what we're wondering is, how do you define sustainability and how is it defined at Allbirds? That's a really great point. I think 
just as you said, yeah, sustainability means 10 different things to 10 different people. And so I think it's so important to be specific about what it means to you and your company and and that that's maybe the best first question to ask a brand. So I'm glad you asked. And I'm lucky that the two overlap, what it means to me and what it means to Allbirds. So when we think about sustainability, we really believe that climate change is the biggest issue facing humanity right now. And we have a very clear and ambitious goal to reverse climate change through better business. So it's really about leaving things better than we found them. That's the idea behind the word reverse. And then this this really strong focus on climate change is the thing we're actually trying to solve for. I want to ask about sustainability as like a first principle or, you know, it being really front and center. And so this is sort of a two-parter. The first thing I want to ask you about is just like, how has Allbirds' commitment to an investment in sustainable practices evolved over the years? Like, where did you start and where are you now? And then I'm going to ask you something else. Cool. Yeah, even within our company and even over the last five or six years, I think the prominence of sustainability has changed dramatically. Mm. If we think back to 2016 when we were founded, so we just, I think last week had our sixth birthday, the founders really had a big conviction that they needed a bigger reason for being than making shoes, that Mm -hmm. in order to compete in business or even feel good about waking up and running a business every day, you needed a bigger mission and purpose. And so they they really had a strong conviction around that. They started the company as a public benefit corporation and a B Corp. But at that time, even it was a little early for the mainstream consumer, I think, coming into consciousness around this stuff. And so back in 2016, I think even though they had this conviction, they were really skating to where the puck was going. And at that time, customers, I think, were still forced into this bad choice between the sustainable product or the product that they actually wanted. Mm -hmm. And so very intentionally, we led with product. We let sustainability be the halo of why you felt good about buying your pair of Allbirds, but it wasn't the reason for buying your Allbirds. Um, We wanted to show that the two could exist together and that sustainability did not mean any compromise in product. It was first and foremost, a great product. Over time, we've seen that change dramatically in terms of awareness from all of our different stakeholder groups around the importance of sustainability to the point where now I I think I feel pretty firmly that sustainability is a reason people support brands and mm-hmm. and make choices about the things they buy. And I think over time as we've started to message it more in large part in large part because of where the customer was headed but also because we felt stronger and stronger about our credentials as we really set up our sustainability program, that we could start messaging it more proactively and that that really did create a lot of brand trust and loyalty with our customer. Mm. The follow-up question I have for you. So like, you know, we fundamentally believe that org design <laughs> is nothing more than a series of trade-offs. And so whatever your first principle is, it if, if you're doing it well, you're probably giving something else up or like it is coming at the cost of something else you might also want. Has that been your experience? And what do you feel like you've had to trade off in order to have sustainability really be at the forefront, particularly recently? Yeah, I think, you know, like most things in life, 
our human brains try to make things either or, try to make Mm. it clear cut. And in reality, it's always an and. And so I think sustainability is sometimes a win-win and it sometimes means trade-offs and there's not a clear answer every time. And I think like ultimately what what makes a brand successful in living out its sustainability mission is if it's making more of the decisions on balance in favor of sustainability. That doesn't mean Mm. that every decision is made in favor of sustainability because as we talk about a lot internally, you know, it doesn't matter if we make the most sustainable shoe in the world if no one buys it or if the business doesn't exist. And so I think Sometimes sustainability does make a lot of sense for both the business and and impact in the planet. I think one great example of that is something like ocean shipping, where shipping by a boat is much lower carbon emissions and much more cost effective for the business. Mm-hmm. There are other areas of sustainability that do require a lot of investment, like inventing completely new materials like we've done in the past with our sugarcane foam or plant leather that we're working on right now. But ultimately, what makes us able to do this is that we know what those costs are and we're integrating them not just into our sustainability goals, but into our financial plans as a company so that both the impact and the business are marching together in lockstep. And I think as we've become a public company in the last year that's been really important for us and is having this partnership between me and our CFO, I think is Mm. a critical element of success for us going forward. That makes so much sense. And yeah, so, so smart. I also just really like the point that you made that it's like, it's always a series of trade-offs. Like (laughs) there's, you know, there's never one way all the time for every single decision that governs. So I appreciate that like I on the macro and the long-term I on the micro and the short-term is, is how you play that game. That totally makes sense. That's right. Yeah, I actually see similar anatomy in other sustainability brands. I mean, Tesla comes to mind where essentially it is, there's the trade-off in the near term, which is often price. Right. When you first get started, things I mean, you know, it's a it's a slip on shoe that's a hundred dollars. But then down the road, you fast forward 10 years, 20 years, it, you can actually have your cake and eat it, too. So it is. Yeah, it's like trade offs over time get get narrower and, and get different, potentially. Speaking of uh, plans and the future and 10 mm-hmm. years from now, Allbirds recently revealed a 10 point plan that you call your flight plan, which is to cut your per product carbon footprint in half by 2025 which is actually okay. right around the corner. Uh, can you walk us through some of the targets and design principles that you anchor to while creating that plan? Absolutely. Yeah, so our sustainability strategy is called our flight plan. We love bird puns at all birds. <laughs> <laughs> we, we love them at Murmur as well. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, as you said, the, the top line goals there are to cut our, our per product carbon footprint in half by the end of 2025 and to drive it to basically zero by 2030. So basically imagining a world, a not so far away world in which our products carry a carbon footprint of less than one kilogram of CO2 per pair of shoes. And to put that in perspective, that is if we continued on a business as usual course, we would be at about 14 in 2030. And so it's a very significant reduction, but basically means that you could be buying shoes that took or it costs the world basically no carbon to produce. Mm. And I think that's really the only way that businesses 
are is included can exist in a world with a rapidly changing climate is if we figure out how to make things with zero carbon. And so underpinning those goals, we have 10 specific targets that help us get there. And they're grouped across three main priority areas for us, which are regenerative agriculture, renewable materials, and then responsible energy. And to get to your question about design principles, I'd say that having a plan or having those 10, those 10 initiatives was a key design principle. I think most companies would set a target based on very macro assessment of what the world needs. So something like the science-based target initiative where you say the whole world needs to get to less than two degrees warming. And so here's what we need to do as a company. And then they announce the target and then they take quite possibly a few years to figure out how to get there. Mm -hmm. And we kind of did the opposite where we looked at what are all of the levers we know we could pull across the business from ocean chipping, as I mentioned, to using more natural materials, to shifting agricultural practices in our supply chain. And what would those all add up to if we could do them all? And that's how we set these targets. That just means that we can really hit the ground running. As soon as we put these targets out, we are already working on going after them. I think the other main design principle was making sure we had a near-term and a medium-term target. I think people call 2030 like a medium term. Um, And we wanted something sooner than that because if you fast forward to 2030, so eight years from now, that's a little ways away. Mm -hmm. And I think just practically speaking, one of the pitfalls of of these long-term sustainability commitments is that the people who set them are not necessarily the people who are still there when the company has to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so even having that accountability of like, okay, it's 2022, 2025, three and a half years from now, like good chance I'm still here. Great chance our CEOs are still here. And so we have a clear line of sight to exactly what we need to do to get there and feel personally accountable to getting there too. I love that point. It's like the number of times we're in a room where someone's like, yeah, this is our strategic plan. And I'm like, look to your left, look to your right. (laughs) Who will still be there when this comes true? Um, So looking through the 10 point plan, like it's, it's aspirational, it's concrete, it's very thoughtful. And because we are a show about org design generally, I'm curious, what, if anything, do you have your eye on in terms of how Allbirds operates to be able to do these things? Like, do you already have the kind of company that in terms of its ability to like adapt and flex is ready to roll and make use of this plan? Are there things you have your eye on in terms of ways of working that would have to look differently in order to, to make this all come true? I think we're totally prototyping our way forward on this one. I think uh-huh. it is something that there is no blueprint for. Like, how do you motivate an organization towards these types of long-term goals that have historically been seen as like outside the role of the key business functions? Right. And so, from day one, we've we've been experimenting. I would say, and to your point about org design. That means that when I joined the company, I was hired into the product function because product is really the engine of the company. It was it was really the idea behind it was just where can sustainability have the most impact? 
and product is the engine, both from an impact perspective and from a business perspective. And so I sat there for many years, really trying to figure out how to best integrate sustainability into product design and development. And that led to our methodology around how to calculate carbon footprints at the product level, how to make sure that that's a real-time calculation that's actually being used as the product is developed and not just after the fact. And as we built that muscle, I've now moved over to report to the COO. So now I report into operations because as we look towards this 10 point plan, many of the things that we have to do are around outside of product. So like, who do we work with to make the products? What kind of energy are they using? How are we shipping products? How are we building retail stores sustainably? And so just from a like influence and leadership accountability perspective, we play around with that. The other things we've tried out are having an internal carbon tax that helps to motivate different functions to reduce the emissions more dramatically. Um, because if we reduce emissions and we don't have to pay as much as in a carbon tax, to having company-wide OKRs around sustainability. So one of our top-line goals for the year is tied directly to a reduction in our carbon footprint and, and the 2022 portion of our flight plan goals. And that is also tied to bonus metrics for the leadership team. So we're trying all these these ways to make sure that this is not just a program we do on the side, but is truly central to how the organization operates and makes decisions and also gives sustainability the authority to make this a part of everyone's job, not just my team. I'm curious, given those intersections that you just talked about being on the product side and then the ops side and, and basically playing across the system as kind of a rogue agent with a mission here, <laughs> how... How do you deal with with pushback and with excuses? Because both are fields of work, new ways of working and sustainability. Both can be pushed off as like, oh, we'll get around to that later. Or there's something more important right now when the going gets tough. And so we need to do that more important thing. What have you found is effective in order to kind of get over the hump on some of those forms of pushback? A couple things come to mind immediately. I think and in terms of how I think about even my team and developing my team, I think one is being able to speak different languages within the business. So I think historically, there's been no overlap between sustainability professionals and business people. Mm. I think that's changing rapidly. And we're seeing you know people who are in college now studying both business and sustainability or marketing and sustainability. And I think that's going to make a huge difference. But Today, like, for example, in getting the flight plan over the line and approved, I knew I had to come to the table, not just with the carbon goals, but the impact to the business from a financial perspective. So I had modeled out all of the costs and the savings to the business and realized that we could do all of this in a way that actually benefited our bottom line. And proactively coming to the table with that understanding and knowing that that was going to be required, I think makes a huge difference. And then I think the other piece of it is empathy uh, and building relationships with other people. I think empathizing with people that you know, they have their own goals that are sometimes conflicting with the sustainability (laughs) goals and trying to put yourself on the same team and work towards a solution together is a lot of the ways we unstick roadblocks are just two people 
working together who care about the common goal more than it is like competing business objectives a lot of the time. Totally. Hey, guess what? It's me this time, folks, asking for a review because that's what makes the world go round. That's how people find the show. So if you care about changing the operating system, if you care about bringing sustainability into our organizations, maybe forward this show to someone who needs it and drop that review. Like and subscribe, smash the like button, etc. <laughs> Thank you. So, Ahana, we've talked a lot about the principle of sustainability and how that's centered. But there are other principles kicking around like transparency and accountability. And I'm curious to hear more about how those show up inside the company. Totally. I think this goes back to the first one of the first questions about how do you define sustainability and the need to be specific? Because I think the crux of the challenge with sustainability is that you are expected to do something on everything and continue Mm. to drive impact. It's constantly balancing these two ideas of needing to focus and, of course, believing that all these things are important. So first of all, just want to normalize that it is okay to focus, that I think having a focus is really key to driving impact in this space and not falling prey to the there's 30 things that I have to do and I'm going to allocate 5% of my brain to do all of them. But within our focus of climate change, we chose that and feel so strongly about it in large part because it is so connected to everything else, whether it's human rights or water or energy or land use. And so we completely recognize the interconnection there. And What we mean when we say we have a focus is it's really about filtering the work that we do through the lens of climate and touching all these other areas. The ones that you mentioned around transparency and accountability in particular, I think are incredibly important to making sure that we do make progress on this goal and that we we move towards our mission of reversing climate change. And so the way that we use that and apply that to our climate strategy, I would say, is one great example is the fact that we label all of our products with their carbon footprint. So in large part, we did that back in 2020 because we wanted to hold ourselves accountable to the emissions that we do create, knowing that we have big goals, but we're still starting at the beginning and we have a lot of work to do. And we want our customer and the public to be able to follow along with us on that journey. So we started publishing the carbon footprints of all the products. And over time, you should be able to follow along and see that number come down over time. And that's that accountability is incredibly important to us as we work towards these goals. and, And you can be sure that it lights a fire under all of us to keep going every day. I love that you're starting to put them on the shoes as well, because it sparks this conversation where people are like, why do your shoes say 12.5 on the side in a massive font? (laughs) And you can start to say, well, this is what this is all about. So I think I like the conversation starter angle. Yeah, that's that's the other core tenant of that initiative is that we expect and we ask customers to make better decisions for the climate, but they actually have no information to base Mm -hmm. those decisions off of. Mm -hmm. And so the least we can do is provide that information transparently to our customer in the same way that we're so used to seeing nutrition facts on the side of of food in the grocery store. We're provided all the information transparently, and then we can make our own decisions. And whether it's shoes or 
food or electronics or personal care products, like all of that information should be made available to us so we can start to develop this kind of relational understanding of how much carbon we emit in a day and how we can all work towards minimizing that over time. So speaking of putting things on the side of the shoe and on giving people more information, during the pandemic, Allbirds and Adidas joined forces to create the Futurecraft footprint sneaker, which has a 2.94 kilogram footprint. And that number matters, as you said before, because, you know, the average sneaker is like 30 pounds of CO2. So it's a big, it's a big difference. And you were on that cross-functional dream team, which was made up of people at Allbirds and your literal competitors. How did that collaboration come about and why was it important to team up? What was the thinking behind that? You're right. It was a dream team. It was such a fun project to work on. And I think it's an example of a time where both companies really defied conventional business wisdom. I think normally you would, and the way this this collaboration came about, you'd meet a competitor at a conference or a dinner party and and you'd kind of give each other, you'd say hello and then you'd give each other the cold shoulder. Totally. Um, (laughs) (laughs) A little side eye. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you'd, you'd try to make friendly conversation, but not say too much, yeah. uh, and then you'd get yeah. on with your life. And instead, in this case, we asked to work together. And from that moment, I think at this point, it was probably two years ago, for the next like 12 to 18 months, we formed this super team, as you mentioned, that basically had for each of the key functions, whether it was product design or development or sustainability or innovation, each brand had a representative who came to the table and the team meetings. And we'd meet at first monthly, then weekly, then daily to the point where their team was in Germany. And, you know, we would meet first thing our morning and they would go to sleep and we'd work throughout the day. And then we'd meet again and they would work through the day and we'd sleep for about a year to create this product together uh, that you mentioned called the Future Craft Footprint. And the key tenant or North Star of that collaboration was trying to minimize the carbon footprint and specifically to try to break two kilograms of CO2. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, Albert's average today of footwear is about 10 kilograms. The average sneaker we think is about 14. So to break two would, would represent a very significant reduction. And in that 12 month period, we got to 2.94. So not quite our original goal, but something that we were extremely proud of. And I think what's most impressive about that is that we were able to do it in just 12 months, which to me is incredibly hopeful because it means that this is possible with what exists today. And I think the, the learnings for me are, are this is possible if we, one, pool best practices and, and actually crowdsource solutions across brands, even if that means working with competitors. And two, if you have the discipline around carbon. And I think that's, that's really lacking at most companies today is that we know how to minimize carbon, but it takes longer and it's maybe more expensive. And so we take a more incremental approach. And, and I think we're past that and we need to be reaching towards these big solutions and really applying a lot of constraints on how we think about making things. 
That's exciting. I also just want to point out <laughs> for our listeners to something you said about the time zone thing. Because I often hear from clients this thing about like being in different time zones and the inconveniences of that. And to me, it it usually, it often, eh, no, it usually points to something that is to me more pernicious, which is that people aren't doing real work. They're only meeting and talking about work, which is when different time zones becomes incredibly inconvenient because you don't have that much time for talking about the work. And to me, if like, if a team is really humming and everybody is clear about what they're contributing and the work to be done and we're doing real work that is required, then having those kinds of cycles that you described is so rad. Like it's such a feature, not a bug. And so I just wanted to say that out loud because I was briefly on a team last year with someone who was based in the UK and the feeling of waking up in the morning and looking at Slack and seeing that a bunch of stuff had been done was like magic. It was like magical. <laughs> I was like having a, it was like having a, a nighttime fairy who like just did things. Um, and then she had exactly the same experience. So anyway, that was just a PSA, but it does lead me to another question, which is, this collaboration was making a new product, but it was also working in new ways, some of which you've alluded to. Were there any like specific practices that you and the Adidas team had to try to be able to really pull this thing off or like agreements you had to make? Or what did you do to sort of suppress any of those more typical competition-based behaviors that we were sort of joking about? And and is there anything that you took back to Allbirds post the collaboration because you were like, this is cool and this is working? It's a great question. I think what was really important was reframing the goal and reframing what we were competing against because I think competition is not necessarily a bad thing as long as it's towards the right aim. And historically, it has been towards, you know, winning in the market or competing on performance. And actually, we have this other common enemy, which is climate change. And if we harness the power of competition towards that aim, that can actually be a really productive thing. And so I think, I guess, related to a point I made earlier about like positioning yourself on the same team as other people, we positioned this collaboration as both brands being on the same team against this common enemy. And in putting out a shoe that we believe is the lowest carbon footprint running shoe that exists today, we are kind of throwing down the gauntlet to everyone else to say, we hope you can beat this. And if you do, we'll be the first to stand up and applaud because there's a there's a goal here that's bigger than each of us individually. And I think that that mentality just unlocked so much because it it, I mean, it's inspiring. It's something you want to work towards. So I think it really fired up the teams who put a ton of hours and and passion into this project and also freed up both brands to really bring their innovation to the table in a way that was like, hey, look what I can contribute, not like I have this secret thing that I don't want you to know about. And that meant that we could create this shoe where it, it truly is, we've talked about it being like a Frankenstein shoe. Like it's, it truly is a combination of both brands from, I think a great example is like the sole of the shoe that's made from a combination of our sweet foam, which is the sugar cane based foam and Adi's light strike foam that they're so well known for. And in bringing 
everything we had to the table, we could create something that both performed really well and was had a really, really low carbon footprint. And I think to do that just takes a ton of conviction from leadership to give teams permission to to share openly. And I can't stress that enough is that that's that takes courage, but ultimately really benefited both brands and the world more broadly. How are you able to make decisions across two teams with two power structures and two different sets of incentives? What what were some of the approaches to decision-making and decision rights that the team ultimately used? Again, I think it was the framing of the project and framing from the beginning, like trying to make very clear that this was a true collaboration between brands. It wasn't an odd issue that we we're going to put an Allbirds logo on or vice versa, that it was meant to be 50% of both. And I think that just enabled a lot of productive back and forth of times. There were certainly times throughout the project where it felt like, ooh, we're getting a little bit too far towards an Allbirds shoe or a little bit too far towards an Audi shoe. But we had the mutual respect and trust to be able to work that out. I think the other thing was being really clear from the outset about what each side was bringing to the table. So for us, we had a lot of experience in natural material innovation and could bring some of that to the table, but also this real discipline and methodology around calculating carbon footprints. And it was clear that that's what we were adding value with. And Audi had this long legacy of performance footwear and really knowing how to build a running shoe really well, as well as really far-reaching manufacturing capabilities. And so anytime that there was confusion about who should make what decision, like if we could bucket the decisions into those categories, we knew who had the real expertise. That's nice. interesting. But I'm curious, as, as a set of teams, when it came to the way you worked and your areas of expertise and the partnership, did you write things down? What tools did you use to kind of keep track of the agreements, the roles everyone was playing, the meeting rhythm, the the approach in general? I think that was one of the biggest challenges overall. I mean, certainly not not bigger than trying to break two kilograms of CO2, but maybe second biggest was that when we imagined this partnership, I believe it was fall of 2019, so it was pre-COVID, we very much imagined this to be in-person and collaborative, and then the pandemic hit, and we have still never met each other. Wow. So we had to, I mean, just as everyone was figuring out how to pivot and keep working without a lot of the tools that we're used to, we as a team across brands also had to figure that out. But, you know, using the systems that we both have, whether it's Google spreadsheets or our product development systems, it didn't end up being too too big of a lift. And I think to the points that were made earlier, working across time zones actually became an asset and allowed mm. us to do more in a short period of time than maybe we would have if we were trying to wait until the next time we could see each other in person. Right on. One thing I want to ask about, because sustainability is so important and y'all have really radical goals around sustainability, I'm curious how that shows up internally. Like, would you say 
culturally you all work in sustainable ways? And is that part of the conversation? You mean? I mean, like sustainable for human beings, like out, like outside of climate considerations. Like, can we keep going this way forever? <laughs> like, could we work like this forever? Uh, I think it's such an important question. Well, you tell me if this is where, if I'm answering the question, but I think it's an important question because on one hand, all of this work feels so important and so urgent and yeah. we do really attract an employee base that feels that way broadly. As a B Corp, we have a lot of people come to work for us because they're looking for mission and purpose and they believe this stuff is important and they bring that belief into their day-to-day roles, whether that's marketing or HR or finance. And that's such an asset. But I think the trap is that because you think it's so important and urgent that you work 10 times harder and you burn out faster. Yeah, that's Um, exactly why I asked. And I think, you know, I I personally have been feeling that over the last few years, particularly without the the ability to connect to people in person and with people who are also doing this work to remember that I'm not alone. Yeah. <laughs> and I was reminded of this recently that it's kind of this moment where for years, sustainability professionals have been banging on the door saying like, hey, guys, pay attention to this. It's going to be bad. Like, let's let's do something about it. And all of a sudden, it feels like over 2020, 2021, like everyone turned to look at us mm-hmm. and say like, okay, we believe you now. What do we do? Mm-hmm. And so at this moment where – we're experiencing so much trauma in the world across many different spheres. We're also being turned to as the people who can fix it mm-hmm. and the people with the knowledge to fix it. And that's a ton of pressure. So on one hand, it's really exciting and it's really overwhelming. And I think the best way to deal with that is just community and connection And I think that's where maybe to your original question, Allbirds has a leg up is that we are this growing workforce of people who are really aligned on what we're trying to do and really came to work here because we want to do something differently and feel like we have the best chance of doing that. And so being able to feel community in that mission, I think goes a long way to making the work sustainable. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, part of the reason I asked is because I, I mean, I I find a lot of organizations that are incredibly mission driven also do burn themselves out. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's like talking about (laughs) it's so it's such a common trope. Well, but I was going to say the other thing is there are a lot of parallels with our own company with the ready, not not even as much from like a mission based perspective, but from the perspective that, you know, all birds is is to sustainability as the ready is to self-management. Like that is our reason for existing in the world. And when the environment catches up in some way with a thing that's been like interesting, but maybe a little fringe or a little novel or a little hard to buy for whatever reason, when the environment catches up, it's super easy to revert to not the thing that's the most important, like not working in the most self-managing ways or not working in the most sustainable ways. And so that was really why I asked the question, both because of what I've seen from mission-aligned organizations, including ours, and because I just have found personally that like when when the world colludes to be like, okay, now's your moment, it, it, it can be tempting and easy to be like, 
less oriented to participation and less oriented to autonomy and all the things that we believe in and more like, okay, like, let's fucking go. This is what we're going to do, which is like not, it is not what we're trying to create in the world in the long term and in the short term can feel like a really useful tool. So, you know, all of that is just to say, I feel you and I feel the same thing in myself. And it's just a, it's a thing to hang on to as the world catches up to what we're all trying to do out there. I think that's a really interesting point because one of the key unlocks, I think, towards managing that sustainability is realizing that it's not just on you, that in my particular case, I have a whole organization of people who really want to do the right thing and just don't always know how. Yeah. And so the role that I can play is helping to democratize this sustainability knowledge, helping to teach people how to bring sustainability into their own work. But to maybe your point, sometimes that feels like the last thing you have time for when things are so urgent is I just got to do the work. I can't spend time explaining it to anyone, but ultimately that gets in your way long term. So that's certainly something I'm trying to remind myself and my team in this moment is take the time to to share the knowledge because that will help us succeed in the long run. Yeah, I love that. Same. Hard same. <laughs> Hard same. Um, with energy in mind, I wonder what you're excited about that's coming down the sustainability road here. What's coming next that, that has your attention and that is giving you the energy to keep going? I think what I'm most excited about is everything that's happening in the policy sphere. I think for a long time, it felt like business was trying to voluntarily lead this change, Mm. which I think is an important piece of the puzzle because a lot of the times I think businesses and large businesses have to signal willingness to do this stuff before there's the appetite to regulate it. But for the first time, it feels like the stars are aligning a little bit more and that we're all starting to move in the same direction. And I think ultimately we need government, we need regulation to make the kind of broad sweeping changes that need to happen in order to avert the crisis that we're heading towards. And it takes, I think it takes all different types of approaches and and I'm excited to be at Allbirds really being an instigator and kind of pushing the boundaries of what's possible when it comes to sustainability in business. But at the same time, we need that slow and steady regulation to kind of clean up the lowest common denominator and make sure that everyone is doing their part Um, especially the largest corporations among us. So I think for the first time that feels like it's moving in in a good direction and I'm excited to help build that momentum. I feel like that bit of optimism is a pretty good place to wrap things up here. Hannah, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? I'd check out allbirds.com. We've got a great uh, sustainability portal on our website and you can download our report there and read more about what we're doing and the flight plan goals. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Awesome. And a quick shout out to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced, as always, by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at The Ready. As for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>